Let's pray. Let's ask for God's help uh, as we come to his word. Let's pray. True and living God, you are the God who speaks. Uh, Your word is true. Your word is good. And so please help us now to hear your word, to delight in it, to trust it, and to live by it. Father, please help me in my weakness to be clear and faithful. And Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Well, have you noticed how obsessed, how consumed our society is with the end of the world? Uh, That was the lament of one New York Times journalist as he reflected on the fact that virtually every movie and TV show at the moment is either about stopping an end-of-the-world event, which they usually do in the last-minute heroic act, usually by the Americans, or it's about life after some near-ending global disaster. Contagion, The Day After Tomorrow, 2012, Armageddon, The Book of Eli, Snowpiercer, Interstellar, Sea, Geostorm, The Happening, Elysium, Sweet Tooth, Salvation, The Last Ship, the list goes on. I even found a great article telling me the top 20 post-apocalyptic TV shows I can watch in 2021. But our preoccupation with the end of the world is not simply fantasy. In 1974, the Chicago's House of Public Policy installed a doomsday clock. Uh, It was put in as a symbol of how close we were to an impending apocalypse. In January this year, the clock was set to 100 seconds to midnight, the closest time it's ever been put at. With the coronavirus raging, locust swarms across Africa, large-spread civil unrest, and especially global warming, the decision, says, it was said, was obvious. And we've seen, I think, this same kind of language in our own news during the UN Climate Change Conference in Glasgow. Our leaders of various countries, including our own, have been accused of not taking seriously the urgency and the desperation of our current situation. It seems that the end of the world is moving from fantasy and film to public policy and decision-making. However, there is always one important distinction when it comes to the end of the world. If you add a religious conviction to it, like the return of Jesus, then you become the unstable loony that everyone avoids. But if you're a Christian, where the future is going and how the world will end is neither speculative or fearful. The end is certain. The Lord Jesus will return personally in glory to raise the dead and to judge the world. Yet it seems to me that many Christians, eschatology, that is, the study of the end times, the return of Jesus is just a subject of confusion or apathy or maybe even fear. Uh, I received this image after the, new, uh, the earthquake in Melbourne a couple of weeks ago. And it made me realise that I think for most Christians, the view of the end is actually either influenced or taken directly from movies or culture more than it is from the Bible. And I think we've seen a lot of this during the coronavirus pandemic. But for other Christians, the whole thing just gets put onto the back burner. It's too hard. Jesus loves me. I'm going to try and live for him in the here and the now. 
and that's enough for me. But for others, and I suspect some even here in this room tonight, uh, the conversation, the whole topic of the end is just difficult or scary. I've had many Christians tell me that they are unwilling or even afraid to read certain parts of the Bible like the book of Revelation. The whole subject has just become mysterious and scary, so we don't engage with it. But it seems that the question of the end of the world and the return of Jesus was of particular concern for the church in Thessalonica. Uh, We addressed uh, the first letter earlier this year, and in chapters 4 and 5, Paul addressed their questions. Eschatology, the end times, was at the forefront of their minds, it seems. And then here in the second letter, fresh off the encouragement and the reassurance of chapter 1, the tone shifts a little as Paul addresses the second coming of Jesus head on. Back in the first letter, in 1 Thessalonians 4, he addressed their question, their concern, about whether believers who died before Jesus came back would miss out on the benefits. But now in the second letter, their concern is they've missed the return of Jesus altogether. So keep your Bibles open, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by teaching allegedly from us whether by prophecy, by word of mouth, or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Paul describes Jesus' return in three ways. Firstly, his coming in verse 1. Literally, it's the Greek word parousia. It means his presence as Jesus comes back physically as king. Secondly, verse 1 still, our being gathered to him, a picture of Jesus raising us from the dead, equipping us with new spiritual bodies to live forever in all eternity. And then thirdly, the day of the Lord, which is the Old Testament anticipation for the decisive, the final act of God as he shows up and overthrows his enemies. All three terms describe the same event, the second coming of Jesus. And in verse 2, Paul is concerned that they are being unsettled or alarmed by this false teaching and it's happening easily. He's concerned that they've changed their mind. It's quickly they've become alarmed as they've forgotten or abandoned what they were already taught. And he uses three words to describe how false teaching might come through prophecy, word of mouth or by letter. False teaching comes in many forms and often from within the church rather than outside of it. Hopefully it goes without saying, but not everything you hear on YouTube or in a podcast is reliable or true. Just because someone sounds persuasive, maybe even leads a megachurch, has a best-selling book at Kurong, and yes, even occupies a pulpit, means they are from God and speaking the truth. It's why we encourage you to keep your Bibles open, to test everything you hear against God's word in Scripture. This is actually what Paul told the Thessalonians to do in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But I imagine for us it seems a little bit strange to think about being persuaded that Jesus has already returned. Uh, And it might be that the false teachers spiritualize the idea of him coming back rather than a literal return or even as the Jehovah's Witnesses suggest that it was an invisible and secret coming. 
But I actually think we are more likely to believe the opposite lie, that Jesus is not coming back at all. Now, I know you might think that no Christian, of course, would ever say that, but we believe that. We're deceived by that lie when we live our lives without any reference to Jesus coming back, where our planning, our priorities, even our spending are con- only concerned for the present, as if Jesus' return is not happening, or at least it doesn't change anything. It's why these letters are so helpful for us. As people prone to confusion or apathy or fear, 1 and 2 Thessalonians bring the return of Jesus into focus. Because as Jesus' people, we are actually always meant to live in light of the end. People who know he will come back and bring final judgment and salvation. Waiting and longing for Jesus to come back is not an optional extra to the gospel, but central to it. Uh, Paul, when Paul talks about the Thessalonians becoming Christian back in his first letter, this is how he describes it. He says, They tell of how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. We see this actually from Jesus himself. We are to be people always ready, watching for his return, Matthew 24. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Jesus' return is no mere afterthought. But as we heard last week, it is our hope-filled, glorious future when Jesus will bring final justice, vindication for his people, and make all things new. Just as Jesus really lived, really died, really rose in real history, so he will really come back. It's why we need to, just as the great American preacher Jonathan Edwards did, we need to pray that God would stamp eternity on our eyeballs to see all of life through the lens of that certain future. And so as the Thessalonians are influenced by false teaching, he doesn't just say, forget about it, don't worry about it. He urges them to be calm and collected, to think clearly about Jesus' return and to live in light of it, by not being deceived. That's where he goes in verses 3 to 12. Verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Paul says you have no reason to be alarmed about Jesus already coming back because two things need to happen before he does. Uh, Now, I hope you noticed, as uh, Sam read the passage, uh, what he says in verses 3 to 12 are complex and perhaps very foreign to us. And so, as I said, keep your Bibles open, and there's plenty of cross-references from other passages that I won't uh, look at in the talk that are in the outline. Please use them. Firstly, he says, before Jesus comes back, there's going to be a great rebellion Uh, The Star Wars fans love this one, but it literally means apostasy. Before the end, there will be a widespread abandoning from the faith. 
Uh, Paul is actually echoing the words of Jesus in Matthew 24. Jesus says, At that time many will turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Or what Paul says in 1 Timothy, the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Uh, And the second, so the apostasy must come, and connected to this apostasy is the appearing of the man of lawlessness. Now this man, as uh, one commentator says, is deliciously ambiguous. We don't know much about him. But he says, Paul says, there will be a man who will come in the future who's going to be characterized by rejecting God's law. He is the personification of sin, if you will, because as 1 John tells us, sin is lawlessness. And verse 4 describes what he does. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. His life and his character are fundamentally anti-Christ. Hence, this man of lawlessness is the same person that John speaks of in his first letter. He is the Antichrist. And he launches an all-out assault on the worship of God. Now, the point of verse 4 is not so much that he's literally going to come in and claim to be God, demanding to be worshipped as God, but that he's going to assume such great authority and influence over God's people so as to then cause this great apostasy. And he does this by setting himself up in God's temple. Now, it's unlikely that by the temple, Paul means the literal temple in Jerusalem, because at this point it no longer had any role in the true worship of God, nor did it have connection with God's presence. No, this is a picture of seeking to exercise influence and authority in the church. Paul says the temple, that temple idea of where God dwells, is now actually in his people, the church. We see that, 1 Corinthians 3 or Ephesians 2. And so this man of lawlessness will appear to unleash a mighty attack on the church and in the church to lead many astray. And how he does it might actually surprise us. This is verse 9. Paul tells us the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. The language and the idea here is actually very similar to what we see in Revelation 12 and 13. If you don't know those passages, in Revelation 12, we see the devil, Satan himself, pictured as this kind of monstrous dragon who is unleashing an attack against Jesus and his people. And then in chapter 13, he does this primarily through two beasts. Firstly, the beast from the sea who represents political powers that persecute and oppress God's people. But then there's this second beast who's more like a lamb who is subtle and deceives through signs and wonders that cause cause false worship. And the two of them work together. Persecution and deception. Persecution, just like we saw last week in chapter 1 of this letter. Deception we see now in chapter 2. 
That's how Satan always works against God's people. And deception is what this man of lawlessness does. He is a servant of Satan. He is the father of lies who does signs and wonders to serve the lie and so deceive people. This is telling us that his attack is primarily spiritual and religious. Signs and wonders are often put together in the book of Acts to describe gospel ministry. But here they are used by him to deceive. And so while it might shock us and leave us with questions about the who and the when and the how, as many Christians have asked and speculated, Paul makes two things clear about his coming. Firstly, his arrival is actually to serve God's purposes. Speaking of those who will be deceived by the man of lawlessness in verse 10, Paul says they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. God uses the man of lawlessness's coming and his unleashing of wickedness to bring judgment on those who refuse the truth. His coming is a sign that the end is coming, that God's patience has run out with those who reject the gospel, and now they are further deceived and condemned along with the one who actually deceived them. That's the second point that Paul makes about his appearing. He appears only to to serve God's purposes and then be destroyed. Verse 8, Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. This man appears at God's appointed time for God's purposes only to be destroyed once and for all. And did you hear how big and complex the battle was? It's not even fair. Jesus only needs to show up, breathe, and his splendor take care of it. As Paul said back in verse 3, this man of lawlessness is a man doomed for destruction. But I imagine it shocks us in verse 10 to read of God sending a delusion. But here we have a picture of the final justice of God that Paul spoke about back in chapter 1. As those who have rejected the truth are now given over to what they want. Because while we live in a culture that says truth is subjective and relative at best, verse 12 sets us straight from God's perspective. The opposite of believing the truth about Jesus is not simply unbelief. It is delighting in wickedness, verse 12. That's what our world is doing right now in rejecting the gospel from God's perspective. And Jesus, the just judge, will come. That language from verse 8 is taken from Isaiah 11. As God promises, one day there is going to be a Davidic king who will come in righteous judgment and slay the wicked with the breath of his mouth. And so though this man of lawlessness will come and will deceive, so too will Jesus come 
as the just judge. And we get a stunning picture of Jesus bringing this judgment in Revelation chapter 19. The reference is in your handout. But I imagine, uh, as you're thinking about perhaps right now, throughout church history there has been plenty of speculation about who the man of lawlessness is. For Christians in the Middle Ages, it was Muhammad. For the Reformers, the Pope or the papacy itself. For others, it's been big political powers like Hitler or Stalin or more recently even Donald Trump. But speculating about what we cannot know and we aren't told is futile at best and an ungodly distraction at worst. Because Paul doesn't say. Yet the depth of details he gives us about these future events are actually to clarify for us what is happening now in the present through the presence of false teaching. This is verse 6. And now you know what is holding him, that is the man of lawlessness, you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. The lawless one is coming, but he's also present now, though he is restrained. Now, there are no less than seven options for who or what is restraining the man of lawlessness now. But he actually doesn't tell us, just that he is. Now, if you would like to talk about those seven, please come and talk to me afterwards. But the point is really clear. He is present and he is restrained. And so just as his future is certain and under God's control, so is his present influence. It's real and it's deadly, but it's also limited. Uh, John actually says something very similar in his first letter. This is 1 John 2, verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Who is the liar? It is whoever that denies, whoever denies that the Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and Son. There will always be a battle f- for the truth within the church. A battle for Christians to not be deceived. And this attack, is it's subtle. It's what he calls a secret power or literally a mystery of lawlessness in verse 7. It's hard to detect. It might sound very persuasive, very Christian. It'll even have some Bible verses quoted to back it up. And so Paul and John, they're giving us a behind-the-scenes look Why does the church constantly face the issue to water down or change the Bible's teaching to make it more culturally acceptable? Why do many leave the church, finding the world more attractive or compelling? Why are churches or Christians often ashamed of Jesus and very willing to retreat and abandon him when things get tough? Why does love of the Bible and depth of understanding seem like an optional extra For so many believers, the mystery of the lawless one is at work now. That's why Paul makes it so clear about this rebellion, this apostasy, and the revealing of the man of lawlessness that is yet to come to clarify what we should be doing 
now that those who refuse to believe and to love the truth will be further deceived and condemned. And Paul is saying, don't let that be you. Hence the application, the response he wants is so clear in verse 5. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? He's saying, come on, guys, we talked about this when I was with you. You know that this is the case. But it's worth remembering that Paul was actually only with this church for about four weeks before he got driven out through persecution. But that was long enough, he says, for me to spell this out so clearly for you. You know the truth, yet you have been so quickly, so easily unsettled by false teaching. And yet what does that mean for so many of us who have been Christian and well-taught for decades? I think we sadly see this exact same thing still happening. In fact, the longer I'm Christian, I feel like the more I see it. I've had friends leave Christianity because they watch a documentary that told them it was all just a big moral zeitgeist. I had a Christian leave the faith because the Da Vinci Codes unsettled their confidence in the historical Jesus. I had a friend leave her Christianity because she didn't want to pursue a same-sex relationship and have to feel guilty about it. And others I know have just drifted steadily over time, one small compromise at a time, forgetting what we have been taught not letting what we know from God's word actually shape our thinking and our worldview, not testing what we hear so we know the truth for ourselves, or even just a casual relationship with the Bible that says we don't really need it. These are all ways that the devil has his way in the church. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote many great books, and his novel The Screwtape Letters is one of the most fascinating if you don't know it, Screwtape is a senior demon. Uh, he's a worker for Satan, and he's writing letters to his nephew, Wormwood. And in one of the letters, this is what Screwtape says to him. It's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. And so if you're a Christian, I wonder, does love of the truth describe you? Now, if you are not yet a follower in Jesus here tonight, I imagine this promise of a future judgment and the return of Jesus is quite overwhelming. But I want to suggest that this promise of what Jesus will do when he comes back is not meant to be a harsh threat, but actually a loving appeal to hear the truth and the wonder of the gospel that he died for you and to be saved. But I imagine many of us are Christian, and so I want to ask you tonight, how is your love for the truth? For some of us, I imagine we're actually a little bit uncomfortable with how, kind of how serious and intense Paul is in this chapter. The line between life and death, perishing and salvation, Heaven and hell is drawn by the gospel of Christ. And so if you're a Christian, I wonder, can you say to God with the psalmist, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. It always shocks me, I think, how comfortable I am to leave church with no recollection of what the sermon or the passage was about. How I and other Christians easily flippantly confess how long it's been since we've read the Bible. So how is your love for the truth tonight? Paul goes into this depth, this intensity of what will happen in the future to show you, to urge you how important your response to the truth is now. I think it's confronting to reflect on how many sermons, books of the Bible, theological truths, small group studies that I've sat through or heard but have no recollection of to so often and even jokingly say, oh, yeah, I studied that once, but I couldn't tell you anything about it. Spiritual amnesia comes very naturally to us. Yet in God's word, we have truth. Life and beauty held out to us in the gospel of Christ, so readily available to us, but do you neglect it? Holding on to the truth is how we are to stand firm as we live in light of the end. That's the focus in this final section of the chapter in verses 13 to 17. What was presumed in the question of verse 5 is now made explicit in verse 15. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. This is the point. The pastoral concern of the chapter made clear for us. Don't speculate about the future. Don't look for signs of who the man of lawless one is. Just stand firm knowing Jesus is coming. And he's clear that what they have been taught already is sufficient for them to stand firm. And so standing firm happens as we hold fast to the teaching we've received, what they had heard by word of mouth or letter from Paul, what we have in our Bibles right here written down for us. Yet they only had one, First Thessalonians, and now they've got two. We've got 13 from Paul, and the whole Old Testament and New Testament conveniently packaged into this one little book. We live in light of the end. We stand firm because the gospel is sufficient for us. Did you see Paul is picturing wave after wave or a mighty storm of false teaching engulfing the believer? Yet with the gospel as their anchor, they do not move. We live in light of the end by remembering, going deeper into the truth of God's word. And in verses 13 to 14, Paul actually models this for them and for us showing them how to remember, how to delight in the truth as he thanks God for their salvation. And if you're a Christian, listen and marvel as he unpacks what it means to believe in the gospel. Verse 13, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. First and foremost, your identity is that you are loved. 
that while you were God's enemy, still in your sins, spiritually dead, without God, without hope, God came to demonstrate, to prove his love for you on the cross. This is a reality. You are loved, grounded in history that does not change. Secondly, still verse 13, that God chose you as first fruits. Uh, by first fruits, he could mean that the Thessalonian believers at this time were the first of many more that would come to believe in the city. Uh, but you may have a footnote, uh, as my NIV does, that it could also be that he's saying, from the beginning God chose you, and that's what the CSB has. And I think that's actually what Paul is saying, and it fits way better here because what he's saying is that God chose them before the creation of the world to be his blessed people. And he says the exact same thing in Ephesians 1. And so by saying that God chose them, it reminds us that being loved by God is nothing to do with our own goodness or ability, but it was completely all his initiative. He chose us and he chose us for salvation. In contrast to those who are perishing and will be condemned, the future for the believer is certain and comforting. We're spared from God's wrath. We're safe in his presence. And his return, far from being fearful, is the fulfillment of our hope. Chosen and saved, we are sanctified by believing the truth, verse 13, that God has set us apart as his people who know the truth and are changed by it, bearing the likeness of our Saviour Jesus. And all this came about, verse 14, when God called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so just as God was in complete control and sovereign over the man of lawlessness coming, so God is sovereign over how people, how you came to believe in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? God called you through the gospel. Now, whether that was your parents over many years, a friend, a youth leader, a random person doing walk-up evangelism, a pastor that you'd never met before, it doesn't matter. God chose you, God saved you, God sanctified you because he called you, however you came. Now, I know that the idea of God choosing who will believe in the gospel and be saved has long troubled uh, many Christians, to which John Stott helpfully says, the notion of God choosing is inescapable because it is biblically rich. And while it may perplex our minds, it is of great comfort to our hearts. Can you feel the wonder, the comfort, the assurance that comes from knowing that your salvation, your relationship with God is entirely his plan his desire, and his initiative. That because of him, and now with him, you're safe, whatever might come to you, and safe for all eternity when Christ returns. And so do you see that in this thankfulness, in this delight in salvation, Paul is showing us that part of holding fast to the gospel is to take time to remember and to savour all you have in Christ. 
He's showing us the joy and assurance we will find if we turn our minds again to God's word. John Piper puts it this way, this is how God has designed the scriptures to work for human transformation and for the glory of God. The scriptures reveal the glory of God. This glory, God willing, is seen by those who read the Bible. This seeing gives rise by God's grace to savouring God above all things, treasuring him, hoping in him, feeling him as our greatest reward, tasting him as our all-satisfying good. Because I think it would be so easy to read 2 Thessalonians 2 and just be overwhelmed, right? There's a man of lawlessness, apostasy, spiritual attack, false teaching everywhere. And it can just leave us as believers feeling small and vulnerable. And I think it's so deliberate then that Paul finishes on this note of supreme comfort. Comfort in the absolute sufficiency of God's word to enable us to stand firm. Comfort in the wonder and depths of salvation that God has achieved for you. And comfort in knowing that that same God will keep you. So we must rest in him and the strength he provides. That's where Paul goes as he prays to finish. Verse 16, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Notice he prays inward encouragement and assurance that will lead them to a life consistent with such a rich identity and hope. Holding fast, being stable as a Christian is not passive. We aren't to bunker down by our theological books and just look out for ourselves. As we rest in all we have in God, we are strengthened to action because a life of every good deed and word is not just the outworking of our confidence. It's not just the sanctified life that we're called to, though it is. It is also a clear and powerful witness to a deceived world around us. A witness to the beauty, to the comfort that comes from the hope we have in Jesus We know where the future is going and we have nothing to fear. This is the life that adorns the gospel and gives glory to Jesus who is certainly coming. So let's be those that live in light of the end, of Jesus' certain and glorious coming. Live in light of the end by longing for that day, by holding fast to the truth of the gospel, and by resting in the God who saved us, who keeps us, and is now at work through us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our sure hope in Jesus, who loved us and by his death and resurrection has given us eternal encouragement and good hope. Please work in us now to be people who long for that coming, who love the truth and who have whole lives consistent with it, pleasing to him. Encourage our hearts and strengthen us now that in the words of 1 Thessalonians 5, our whole spirit, soul and body would be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we rejoice that you who called us are faithful and we thank you that you will complete your good work in us. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come.
Amen.